Alrighty, well, welcome everybody to the weekly live stream. My name is Ryan Pauly, and today we're gonna have a fun conversation, one that I've talked about many times before on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, but we're gonna also add in some great information talking about near-death experiences, not something that I've talked about very much. And to do it, I'm bringing on a distinguished guest. I'm very excited for this interview. Uh, joining me is Dr. Gary Habermas. Uh, he is the author and co-author of over 40 books, including 100 articles and reviews and journals and magazines. Last 16 years, given over 1,500 lectures at about 100 or so different universities, seminaries, and colleges. His PhD is in history and philosophy of religion from Michigan State University uh, and is taught and now acts as the distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University, where he's been for about 30 years. So Dr. Habermas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be here. I'm very excited for our conversation because your work that you have done, you know, specifically in my master's program with the, uh, my, I took a class on the evidence for the resurrection, and I've read The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, the book that you put out with Michael Lacona, and so I'm so excited to finally be able to sit down, have this conversation with you, and so um, I just want to first off just say thank you so much for the work that you've done and, and building up the body of Christ and defending what it really is most important. I think it is most important. I tell my grad students all the time, it's all about ministry, and I uh, really believe that. Yeah, absolutely. This obviously is the most important thing, as you just mentioned, uh, but is this something that's always been of interest to you? Uh, have you kind of been raised a Christian, re recognized this is important, wanted to study it, or is this something that kind of came along after a little while of studying? Uh, I was raised in a Christian home, uh, attended a German Baptist church. However, uh, I started having some rather severe doubts, and to t make a long story short, the closest person to me in my life, closer than my parents, uh, died. And shortly after that time, I started having doubts about the afterlife and whether Christianity was true and whether there was something to, you know, trust in. And people came alongside me and said, consider this, consider that. Here's a good evidence. Here's the, that, you know, here's a good evidence. And there are a lot of things in Christianity where the evidences are different well, I would express that as different levels of probability, different levels of likelihood. But I didn't want everything I held dear to turn on what I would consider something with uh, lower probability. So, uh, but one day I, I happened to read something, which I'd never studied before, but I happened to read something on the resurrection. And the author said, you know, if Jesus is raised from the dead, can you think of a better uh, scenario than that God would have raised him as he claimed because his teachings were true. Why else would the one time, and this is not claimed of any other founder of any other world religion, why would this happen? He's not going to raise himself. Dead men don't do anything. What's God trying to show if this is what happened? And uh, the argument made sense to me, but here's what was missing. I didn't know if Jesus was raised from the dead. Hmm. So that started my quest. And I tell people when they ask me in interviews, it'd be nice if I could say, yeah, I went into this subject because I wanted to help men and women everywhere who were doubting. I did it totally for them. Well, <laughs> that's nice, but not really true. Yeah. I did it for me. I did it to answer my own questions and I was off and running. 
Well, that's good. I mean, that's where it often starts is that we have questions over something we start studying. And then hopefully then we can use what we have learned to be a blessing and to be a benefit for the body of Christ and for others. And I think that's what you've done here, obviously, with this information. So I just thank you for that. And uh, this is something that hopefully comes up in conversations. If we're going to be telling people about Jesus rising from the dead for their sins and and being the gospel message, the resurrection is important. Um, Maybe let's start with what are maybe some common challenges that people might get when trying to witness to people and talking about the resurrection of Jesus? Well, you know, things have changed in the last few decades. I mean, uh, there was a time when critics would just step up to the plate and sort of say, well, why couldn't this happen? Why couldn't that happen? And that still happens. Mm -hmm. But chiefly, in my experience, with scholars who are not specialists, people who are skeptics, but they don't, Let's just say it this way. Uh, they don't have PhDs in uh, a relevant subject. Now, I don't care if the person is an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, a Jewish New Testament professor, well and good. In fact, there's a sense in which I'd rather talk to those people because I'm tired of everybody else saying believers don't know anything. But when the critics start granting things, I noticed when I did my doctoral dissertation, that's the basis for my minimal facts argument where I uh, I have what I usually call minimal facts, but sometimes I call it the lowest common denominator argument. I'll use okay. the, the less, least ab- evidence we have, and that's enough to show the resurrection happened. Perfect. So as we then kind of discuss this, I mean, that's what a big thing you're known for is minimal facts. Can you explain what exactly are the minimal facts and how did you come up with this approach? Sure. Well, when I did my dissertation, now, I had a big committee. I, I'm on committees now, and I teach full-time PhD, and our, our fellows and uh, ladies who are in the program generally have three people on the committee. Other people can attend, but they have three people in the committee. I had six, and it was pretty well split, as nearly as I could tell. You didn't ask your professors in those days what they believed, but, but I had three who believed the resurrection, three who did not believe. And one of my professors on the committee was a, um, a Jewish uh, historian. And uh, they were all, uh, they didn't give me any trouble. They said, you know, this is a state university. I'm kind of liberal around here. But if you can make the point and evidence it, you can have it. We're, we, you don't have to agree with us. We don't have to have you, you know, do what we say. Yeah. And so I was off and running. So what I did was I came up with a list of about a dozen facts and then as time went on, I reduced those facts to just six, which are the clearest. I think just about anybody will admit the 12, 15, whatever. I use different numbers there. But if I could only use six, I'd say real quickly, uh, Jesus died by crucifixion. The disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. It was proclaimed, this truth was proclaimed very early. How early? Well, according to James D.G. Dunn, you go, well, you just pick one name up, but that's just not true. First of all, he's as influential as any New Testament scholars today. And Dunn says that the early creed in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following is probably formulated about the same time Jesus is crucified. He wow. says months, within months. Wow. And so it was, per, it was proclaimed very early. Bart Ehrman gives a, gives a list of about a half dozen comments that would fall within one to two years after the cross. I mean, we hear the Gospel of Mark at plus 40, but how about one to two years after the crucifixion? Then fourthly, they turned the world upside down. Now, 
I know a lot of people are willing to die for a lot of things. I don't deny, I wouldn't doubt that atheist communists could have died for in the Russian Revolution of 1920, I, 17 to 20. I, I don't doubt that. But they, doubt, they, they died for their belief, just like Christians on the mission field today, just like the Buddhist priests who set themselves on fire to protest the war in Vietnam. I respect that. But the disciples died for a different reason. They died willingly, those who did. And I don't claim everybody died. That well, We don't know that everybody died. But the ones who did, and whether they did or didn't, they were all willing to, from what we know. They died because they thought they saw the risen Jesus. And someone goes, where is that found? Well, it's found because everybody says it's the center of the gospel. Without it, there's no gospel. So yeah. they died for their belief in the resurrection. And then two skeptics, Paul and James, unbelievers before, believers afterwards, they meet the res risen Jesus, and we have to count for their testimony. So there's six. All right, perfect. So, I mean, when, when you're discussing these kind of six main points, um, you know, where uh, is, uh, I mean, where is the confidence level in these? You know, I've heard some people say, you know, when it comes to the empty tomb, that can be used, but it, maybe it's not as solid as the belief that the disciples had that Jesus rose from the dead. So where kind of can maybe we understand the confidence levels that people have when discussing um, these six points that you mentioned here? Well, let's use the example you're using. Uh, when Michael Cohn and I did the book uh, that was mentioned earlier, um, Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, um, we mentioned one of our chapter titles is called Four Plus One. In those days, we were doing four minimal facts. And we added the empty tomb because it is so well evidenced, but it's not agreed to by 90-something percent, which is our criterion. So um, about 70 to 75 percent of New Testament scholars accept the empty tomb right now, from what I can tell from doing head counts. Uh, it's, but there are as many evidences for the empty tomb as there is for almost any one of these dozen facts that I referred to. I don't call the empty tomb a mental fact because it doesn't have this almost unanimous agreement. But there's about 20 evidences for the empty tomb. And when I say 20 evidences, I don't mean quote a verse and say, well, there you go, there's the verse. I'm, the 20 evidences are all gathered critically from the way critics do New Testament research. And uh, the empty tomb follows. So, but to compare the two, I would put the appearance of the disciples as as way better in terms of critical acceptance, probably high 90s. You, you almost cannot find somebody who doesn't believe in it. Empty tomb, like I said, 70, 75%. Okay. Now, then how... I mean, if these facts are so good, one question that someone asked me in kind of preparing for this interview and this discussion is, why didn't the first century Jews believe it? Now, obviously, we have testimony of some turning to Christ, but why then are people not believing it if this evidence is so solid? Well, first of all, just to comment, um, we read that in the first sermons of Acts uh, 2 and 3, 5,000, and I think the text says 5,000 men came to Christ. Now, if, if we think that the, you know, the reference of the Gospels to 5,000 being fed, and it's often said, well, if that included women and children, you could have had 10 or 15,000 people there. Well, same thing. If 5,000 people come to Christ in the first two chapters of Acts, that could be 10 or 15,000. Then in Acts chapter 6, I wish this verse were explained, but in Acts 6, it says, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So if that many people are coming, and who are they? They're Jews. These early these early believers are, I, I don't know what they would be, 90% Jews? I mean, this was in Passover yeah. weekend. So 
but but it's the same point that my bigger response is this. I'm saying, yeah, Jews did believe in droves. But the bigger reason is this. We don't, as, as much as we would like to think we're super rational, we don't usually put our all our eggs in one basket. And you're a pretty sharp guy if you have some facts for what you believe. Yeah. Most of us uh, base our beliefs on our political party, what school we went to, what's our family name, what are our emotions today, what's going to give me a headache. We'll we'll put we'll put all of that on the line. And people, that, you know, I get the same question only it's about today. Why don't all these unbelievers just come to Christ? Well, why don't all single unbelievers get married? Well, because they don't feel like it. Uh, they don't want. To. <laughs> they think maybe a lot of you know. Someone asked me why I don't play golf. I used to play just contact sports. I say I'll take it up when I'm eighty. Uh, maybe someone's going to take it up when they're eighty. But if yeah. they don't want, what are you going to say to them? Yeah, you can say you don't have any. Re you know, you, all the facts are against you. You're going to say, oh, okay, that's it. Yeah, everyone has a right to think what they want. So, okay, then then how would you use this information to kind of have that more evangelistic conversation where you're trying to share Jesus, you're trying to share how we have such good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but then knowing that person is just going to do what they want, how do you go about having that conversation and trying to persuade them faithfully to Christ without smashing them over the uh, head with it? Okay, first of all, somebody asked me in an interview just a few days ago, they said, do you think of yourself as an evangelist? And I said, frankly, I don't. Um, I, I'm very interested in people coming to Christ. I would like people to vote like I do too. You know, um, I want that to happen. But uh, I, I will try to present the facts of the gospel, which to me, at a minimum, are the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I will give data for those things. And I will try to critique your comebacks if you want to look at facts. I'm willing to talk facts. But if, if a person doesn't want to come that way, I love what uh, another apologist, uh, Greg Kokel, says. Uh, I would just like to put a stone in your shoe. Yeah. I want to give you something to think about. And I can't guarantee what you're going to believe or not believe today. But if you go away thinking about it, hey, that's pretty good, too. Absolutely. That's good. You know, I just think because, you know, I, I teach a historical Christian doctrine class at my school uh, to high school students, and we always cover the resurrection. And I told you when I met right. you at, at the Evangelical Theological Society conference that and my students had watched one of your videos, and we went over the minimal facts, and we, and we discussed these evidences, and then, okay, what best explains this? And a lot of them were just left with, uh, the disciples lied. And it's like, okay, well, you recognize the problems, and they went, yeah, we recognize the problems, we recognize no one really goes with that, we recognize these things, but I just, that makes more sense than a resurrection. And so at some point, it's like, have we been faithful? Have we responded? Have we given them something to think about? And the rest, right, we trust that the Holy Spirit's the one that's leading people to Christ. It's not, have I presented enough right. evidence? It's not even our job. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's our job to present it, but we don't have the wherewithal to make a supernatural, you know, result. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how, what would you then say in response to someone who says, your minimal facts approach by saying the majority of scholars agree to this, therefore it's a fact, it kind of sounds like an appeal to an authority. Okay, first of all, in reverse order. Appeals to authority are not logical fallacies. Whatever anybody tells you, they're not logical fallacies. I mean, if, if you want to know if you hurt your wrist, are you going to go to the paper boy or are you going to go to an orthopedic surgeon? You're going to check things out with people who know. We always go to people in authority. The fallacy is to go to somebody who's not 
in the field or to think that going to somebody in the field settles the question. Neither of those is true. But simply appealing to authority, if it's authority in the subject, there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the bigger comeback. The minimal facts are not determined by headcount. That's our second criteria, as I already said. I'm glad you asked me that after I made the first point. <laughs> the, the arguments for the empty tomb deserve to be heard because there's more than 20 critical arguments for the empty tomb. But I, I put them in the back burner, still good, but I put them in the back burner because only about 70 or 75% of scholars agree with it. I want, I want more or less unanimous agreement so we have some grounds for talking. My biggest criterion by far is that I won't accept any fact that does not have many evidences in its favor. That's the more important one. And I can always say to you, uh, I have a lot of facts for this, and you don't agree with me, hey, that's your business, but I do have a lot of facts for this. And that's by far the most important thing. That's good. Uh, yeah, we really are appealing to what is history revealed to us? You know, what is it, what is the good evidence? And right, and then there's a reason why the authorities, why the the scholars in that area are accepting it because there's good reason to believe it. Now, what, what then would you say then about, um, you know, these kind of the uh, scholars that maybe are appealed to that Jesus wasn't even real? Um, you know, the, you, you hear this online. Do p relevant, I mean, you've all, I, I, I posted the video online where even Bart Ehrman, the, the, the skeptic, the non-Christian guy, he says that he doesn't know anyone with any relevant degree at any major university who believes Jesus didn't exist. It's normally just kind of the Internet person. Is there any credibility to that whatsoever? Well, first of all, it's Bart Ehrman. But what I mean is he's got no reason to, to want to say that if he doesn't, if he doesn't think it's true. Yeah. But Bart Ehrman does say, to make one caveat here, Bart Ehrman says, as far as I know, there's only two guys who have terminal degree credentials, Bob Price and uh, Richard Carrier. They're the only ones. But here's the way he says it. There are two out of all the guys who run their mouths and say that. And I say run their mouths because 99 point something percent are not scholars, according to Bart Ehrman's definition. But there's two. But then Bart Ehrman says none of them who hold this position hold teaching positions in accredited universities, colleges or seminaries. So neither Bob nor Richard, according to uh, Bart Ehrman, hold you know, a position in one of those accredited schools. Yeah. So when these guys keep saying, I'm a scholar, I'm a scholar, I'm a scholar, um, you know, well, what's their backup? Because they read something? Because yeah. they go off on something? Because they can blow up at you? I mean, what makes them uh, a player in this game? And, and well, anyway, I was just going to yeah. say why they're angry all the time, too. seems to me there's <laughs> a lot of emotions going on here in the background. And not everybody. I'm not saying all these folks are angry. Good good number of Christians are angry, too. But I have a debate on the resurrection where I'm not one of the participants. And the atheist in the debate says, specifically says, I'm not one of those angry atheists that you run into all the time. And it's the atheist <laughs> who makes the comment. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Um, okay, so... Then what would you say in response? Do you have a short, because one of your areas of study is not only the resurrection, but also the historical Jesus. Uh, do we have, right. you know, what would be the one or two things you would say that oh, this is overwhelming reason to believe Jesus, as described maybe in scripture, at least to some extent, is a real historical person? Well, I've got a book, Historical Jesus, where I give approximately, actually uh, about exactly a dozen and a half 
sources for Jesus outside the New Testament mm -hmm. that tell us a lot about Jesus' life. None of the sources, in fact, well over one and a half dozen, not a single source is canonical. Okay. But, you know, if you say this to a Bart Ehrman or something, they will let you use all the canonical sources you want, as long as there's backup for any of the text you want. If I talk to the biggest name critics, Bart Ehrman, Dom Crossan, if I talk to those guys and I use one of the seven accredited Pauline epistles, that's the books that they say Paul definitely wrote, um, they, they may not agree with Paul, uh, and they don't take his view of scripture, but they think he's a real scholar, basically a PhD in Old Testament. He's authoritative. He knew the apostles and he was being honest. He's not lying. So they would cite Paul. Uh, another argument I think is very, very important is about Paul going to Jerusalem. Bart Ehrman says that, uh, right after his conversion, Bart Ehrman says that most of the creedal, maybe all the creedal sources in Paul's epistles could have been in existence from Jerusalem well, before Paul met the Lord, Bart doesn't believe he met the Lord, but uh, he thinks Paul thought he met the Lord on the way to Damascus. He says all those creeds could have been uh, around with at plus five, plus five years after the cross. Yeah. So I think those things, independent evidences, and that Paul went to the horse's mouth. Bart Ehrman himself says this is as close as we come to eyewitnesses, and that is Paul giving us the testimony of Peter, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and then in chapter two, he goes back to Jerusalem of Galatians, and John is there. They're the big four. Okay. Paul, John, Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus. Awesome. That is so good to know. So then as we kind of, you know, I, one thing I love to do, and I have short answer Q&A videos, question of the day on my, on my channel, is give people short responses to you know challenges or questions that they may get and so kind of going through some of the objections maybe to the resurrection uh what would you say to someone who says uh that you know they probably it was normal for them jesus was not a uh, a rich person he was just the common kind of man and they would have just thrown him in a mass grave he would have never gotten a proper burial uh so his body was probably just thrown in a mass grave and uh that's and we lost him and that's why they thought the tomb was empty Okay, well, okay, a number of problems. Uh, first of all, he was crucified in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem is exactly the location where the private tombs are. Jesus had some well-to-do friends. We're told that two of them were Joseph and Nicodemus. They came forward according to the text. And someone could say, oh, you're quoting the Bible to me now. Okay, fine. Remember I said a moment ago, independent texts, and Paul went to the eyewitnesses. On the independent score, all four Gospels... All four Gospels say that that Jesus was buried in an individual tomb. You can disagree with it. Now, scholars, they think, well, you know, um, Matthew uh, answered, uh, took this from Mark, Luke from Mark, John. That's two sources, Mark and John. But scholars believe that there's three, four, or even five sources for some of these things because it's also recorded in an early creed in Acts 13. You also get Paul's quoting the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, died, died, buried, rose for a Jewish thinker, especially a Pharisee, as Paul was, to be buried and to go down and to come back out again means that what went down is what came out. So Paul, I think, implies the empty tomb. By the way, it's Paul who's speaking in Acts 13 that said Jesus was buried in a tomb. So we have independent evidences, I think. And by the way, all right, so you reject the empty tomb. Someone rejects it. Good. It's not even one of my six facts. 
So you're going to have to go after the other data and go after the appearances. That's the big one. You got to disprove the appearances. That's the hardest job. Okay. Now, so one time, you know, and I've shared this story a long time ago, but I, you know, I wanted to be able to use apologetics and tell people about Jesus and all this kind of stuff. And just the opportunities weren't coming. And it was right after I finished my graduate class at Biola on the evidence for the resurrection that I was on a plane flying back home for the summer. And a guy sits down next to me and brings up how we can't know if anyone's ever died and rose from the dead. And you can't know anything about religion. I was like, wow, how cool is this that God just brings this you know, opportunity to talk about this? So we had some conversations, and right. one of his objections was, well, clearly the disciples thought the tomb was empty and Jesus was gone because they moved the body back to Rome because they wanted to prove to Caesar that Jesus was dead. And so the Romans moved the body. That's why the disciples showed up. The tomb was empty. What would you say to that one? First thing I would say to him is why do you pick and choose scripture? When I pull scripture up, and I ne- and I don't ever use a verse that only critics that only Christians use, but he go- he might say, well, that's what jo- that Joseph, you know, it's those it's those gospels that are prejudiced. I think, and he has no evidence. That for the first thing I'm going to say is, hey, I've listened patiently to you. I've given you three, four, five first century sources for the burial. Why don't I just pause here for a moment and ask you to give me three, four, five first century sources for your thesis that Jesus' body was moved to Rome. Oh, nothing? Okay, how about let's go down to two. Can you give me two? Oh, you can't? Okay, one. Okay, what, you can't give me one? I did this with a guy one time, he was not a Christian, and you know what he said to me? He said, I don't need a verse. That's my Bible logic. Okay. That's one of, I think that what that meant was, I can believe what I want to believe, which is true. But don't talk to me like you have data. Yeah. Well, this guy eventually went on to say, okay, well, obviously disciples lied because who wouldn't lie to sit around being fed grapes all day long just to be telling stories about Jesus? Is that what happened to the disciples? They sat around getting fed grapes to tell stories about Jesus? And in between grapes, you get a sword put up to your throat saying, uh, you know, and, and we don't have to, again, I made this point earlier. We don't have to say that they died for their faith. We only have to say they they were willing to die for your faith. And they, and the critic might say, well, how do you know? You can't read minds. And I'm not reading minds. They constantly put themselves in pressure where they were captured. They were stoned. In Paul's case, he was shipwrecked. They had all kinds of things happen to him. Uh, Paul was left for dead outside of Lystra. Several of the disciples we know did die. Uh, they put themselves in those positions. Does that sound like grapes? Or do you want grapes? <laughs> do you think grapes are cool, but you know you're going to be dead in a year? What do you think? Exactly. That's. I was like, is that what happened to the disciples? And he's like, oh no. And you know, it was just. It just seemed like something he was throwing out, trying to get around the evidence, and and he knew was that he, there was nothing yeah, for it. Was he upset? Was he angry? Well, he he started off very angry, right? When I tell the story, and it's true. It's, you know, I sit yep. down on the airplane. I said, "How are you doing?" And he goes, "I'm fine." Yep. You know. And, and that's how our conversation started. Um, but anyways, well, a question just came in. Are oh, you had something? I think I, cut no, you I was going to say, I, on the, I don't usually talk on planes because I get a book out. So someone doesn't say, well, just talk to me. But it, I, the times I have conversations, one was with a doctor, a guy with a doctor's degree in psychology, secular professor. Okay. And all I told him was I started off with the scholars accept this, 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 and this. He never disputed. He goes, Really? They all admit that? Oh, yeah, 90-something percent. Really? What do you have for this? I have this and this. Wow. Hey, and if we got off the plane, 
good to talk to you. I'm going to do some more studying about this. They oh. generally just concede when I tell them where scholarship is. Yeah, that's just awesome. Yeah. So. Well, actually, what happened with me is I pulled out the book, and it was the book that he asked about that ended up leading into the conversation. So um, a question came in uh, from Audra Addison where she writes in, oh, that's really big. Let me make that a little bit smaller on the screen. But uh, what are the cl- sources that are closest to the time of Jesus' resurrection? The earliest sources without any question are the early creedal sources that appear for the first time in the books in which they're written, the, the epistles, but they predate the epistles by decades sometimes. And this is not Gary Habermas speaking from Liberty University. This is Bart Ehrman. I go back to, and it's not just Bart Ehrman. Uh, Gerrit Ludemann, the atheist New Testament German scholar, says the latest this, these report came out about the resurrection and we hear all these things is three years after the cross. The latest is plus three. Barman says we have all kinds of sources from what plus one plus two. Jimmy Dunn says the creed for First Corinthians 15, three and following probably was uh, formulated months after the cross. And so it, I know it sounds kind of funny to say, well, these creeds are in the New Testament and they're much earlier. Paul, for example, says, I gave you what I was given. He said, I got it from somebody else. And the critics unanimously, the consensus New Testament position is that Paul received that when he went to Jerusalem right after his conversion yeah. three years later and talked to the disciples. That's so the best sources are the early creeds. Wonderful. Now, talking about sources, one last maybe objection that comes up before we switch topics over to near-death experiences uh, is, and this is, I mean, it pops his head up every now and then, is this idea of dying and rising gods and that Jesus is just based on all these pagan mythologies. Now, I've also, and what reminded me of this is that I've heard you uh, and, and seen you talk about this on YouTube in, in different videos before where uh, talking about the sources of Jesus and how these sources compare to sources of the dying and rising gods, and if there are resurrection accounts in those. So kind of what would be, uh, maybe really quickly, some some issues or problems with this idea that Jesus is just a copycat dying and rising God? Well, first of all, dying and rising gods are mythical stories. They don't purport. I, I mean, there's a few historical persons about whom stories are told, but almost always, the ones you're talking about, Greco-Roman sources, Isis, Osiris, Plutarch, of all people, when he writes his book, Isis and Osiris, he said it's good to keep in mind that these are not histories, they're tales. They don't. They, there's no reports. But it's Bart Ehrman, again, I mean, I could use a lot of other people, but since Bart Ehrman has come up so much, atheist New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman probably spends 20 pages in his book, Did Jesus Exist?, 20 pages going off on dying and rising gods. He said there's not a prayer that these reports have anything to do with Christianity or prove anything. And he's got a one-liner. Now, he took this from a guy named Smith who just recently died, a, a professor, distinguished professor at University of Chicago. And Ehrman is citing him. And what he says is, hey, in the ancient world, people go away. They walk off. They leave. They move. And nobody ever sees them again. Uh, sometimes they die and nobody ever sees them again. But he says in the ancient world, nobody dies and is seen by people later. Hmm. That's Bart Ehrman saying that. We don't have any reports like that. And as far as your other question, um, the earliest source for Alexander, biography, I don't mean an inscription in a rock. Um, The earliest thing we have for Alexander is just short of 300 years after after he died. The best sources for Alexander are Arian and Plutarch, from four and a quarter to 450 years after he died. And you think about that, that's almost half a millennium 
you go, well, you're picking a straw man here. No, actually, I've just picked one of the very best examples there is. I've got a book that says, a Buddhist book by a Buddhist PhD who says, we don't have what you Christians have. My, all my Buddhist sources that I'm writing about in this book are 600 to 800 years after Buddha was born. I mean, after he died. They don't, they're, uh, Zoroaster, his theology, his theological texts are a thousand years later. The earliest copy of the Bhagavad Gita in Hinduism is 4,200 years uh, later. It's just that the Upanishads, the, the uh, uh, Hindu source, 1,800 years yeah. after the fact. So there's just no competition for any of our data. People get mad, people can argue, but they're not going to produce better data than we have. Yeah. And would you say that the dying and rising God issue, that uh, they're more likely to be copying from Jesus than Jesus is copying from them? Well, hey, we've actually got examples where the dying and rising stories are one way. Like, for example, they'll say, you can have health and wealth, and you can have a great life by believing this. And the Christians come to town. This is an actual example. And the Christians come to town and say, hey, well, you can have eternal life if you believe in Jesus. And the result is the dying and rising God people go, oh, yeah, and we give eternal life, too, after the Christians were already proclaiming it. And it's Bruce Metzger, none other than Bruce Metzger of Princeton, the, probably, I mean, maybe the best Greek scholar of all time, but it's Metzger who says, we know for a fact that the dying and rising gods changed their tales after the Christians were telling theirs. Wow. Several of the major dying and rising gods, there's no resurrection stories until two or three hundred years after Jesus. Wow, that's powerful. All right, so one last question on the resurrection came in, and then we'll change over our, our topics. But uh, do you think it's more important to debate skeptics uh, or to show Christians how to defend the resurrection? Or is this something you kind of well, do both? Both because I don't go out of my way to do one or the other. I'm doing an interview tonight because you asked me to do an interview. I had 10 requests for interviews coming in the last week. Uh, they come to me, so I pretty much just do what I'm asked to do, and I don't have to go out looking for things. So, And I, don't, I never sit there, and I never think, which one do I want to do more of? Yeah. I, do, I will tell you one thing. I do appreciate a dialogue with an unbeliever. I've got one set up for coming in, in this short period of time. I'd rather dialogue and talk than debate with time limits where we each talk 15 minutes, we each talk yeah. 10 minutes. I'd rather dialogue so you can push each other and people can see who's got the data. That's good. All right, so switching over then to our near-death experiences, very kind of different topic, but maybe there's some connection here we'll talk about, but uh, can maybe let's start by making, giving some definitions. Uh, how would you classify someone as having a near-death experience? Well, that, that's, a hot, that's a hot topic because uh, it's hard to even define death. There are different definitions of death. Um, a definition of a near-death experience from the time this got, this has been really seriously studied, which is about, uh, about 40 years now. Michael Sabom, one of the earliest uh, guys getting into NDEs, he said, a near-death state is one from which you have a cessation or apparent cessation of vital signs, and it's likely that you're going to die if somebody doesn't intervene quickly. That's the that's the scenario. Now, it is true, and now here, see, a skeptic's going to speak up and go, hey, well, there are cases of people who aren't even anywhere near death and they have a, a, an NDE. Uh, that's correct. But how many do you want to talk about? 1%? 1% of the whole? According to a recent medical book on NDEs, a recent medical book, 
they estimate, written by a bunch of doc, uh, medical doctors, uh, and the editor's a medical doctor, came up from a university press, they estimated that up to 30 million people in North America and Europe alone have had have ex- experienced or witnessed near-death or near-death phenomena. 30 million in the world. I say it this way to people. I'll say, I'm obviously exaggerating, but I say to people, if 30 million people claim to have been to Narnia, maybe we should start thinking about there being a Narnia. Mm-hmm. So it's not true that they're just like you know four or five ten of them out there. Yeah, so there's there's tons of these things uh, that are out there that we could yep. be discussing, and mm-hmm. a lot of good ones. Now, what would then classify one as being more? Um, I mean, what what does the evidence look like to confirm these? And maybe we can start getting into some of the specifics that you think are more powerful than others. Sure. But you know, it's it's. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess my question is, people often ask me, like, what do I think about like heaven is for real? You know, the boy that that went, and then also the stories written about. You know, is it just here's what I saw? How are we confirming that these things are actually happening? Well, because of the evidence, and, and I just, I had a written debate a couple of years ago, and I divided the evidential cases. I know of more than 300 evidential cases in the literature, and I divided the evidential cases into five categories, and I talked about evidence inside the room, inside whatever room it happens, often a hospital um, or an operating room, but also inside a hospital, or evidence outside the room. What happened on the ambulance? What were your what was your family doing six floors below you in the hospital outside the room? Then NDEs in the blind, the only, sometimes they're congenitally blind from birth or just hours after birth. Um, what do people see when the only thing they say they've ever seen is during the NDE and they haven't seen anything before or after? So that's pretty major. And then two Twilight Zone categories. There are a few cases of healthy people who have shared the NDEers NDE. They have shared, they just happened to be there when the phenomena occurred, the supernatural scenario, and they witnessed it. The healthy people witnessed it. And then our last category, a lot of people uh, pass away. And in fact, one article had over two dozen of these in one article. Um, they will be with a family member. And let's say that family member, a father, a mother, a sibling, uh, they've been dead for one year, two years, five years, 20 years. Uh, I know one case longer than that. And they're with that person. And the person tells them something that nobody in the hospital knew. Uh, I mean, I'm making I'm making the scenario up, but some of them are like this. Um Dad, how you doing? And this thing only lasts for 30 seconds. And Dad says, John, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're going to get a telegram in two days. Your favorite cousin in Afghanistan was just killed. You're going to get the telegram in two days. Uh, and it happens. Or they will say, uh, hey, your uncle in Japan just died. And they'll hear about it later. Or they'll be, they'll be told something that nobody in the vicinity knows nobody in the room nobody anywhere um so there's a lot of examples like this like i said over two dozen of them in one article bruce grayson who's probably he's retired now from uh, university of virginia school of medicine he's a psychiatrist and uh, uh i think he was the director of the brain sciences program but bruce grayson published over 1 
1,500 peer review articles only in medical journals and psych journals, over 100. So when people say, welcome, the doctors don't know about this. I, I, I sometimes, it's hard not to get, try to respond to a cocky person being cocky yourself. Like, well, why don't you try reading? <laughs> you know, it, it just, sometimes you just get tired of the, the comebacks with people who haven't studied at all. And all they have to go is they want to kind of boss you around with their anger. It's just sickening after a while. Yeah. So what would then be kind of the apologetic significance of this? Uh, what, what would you, why would you use, or, you know, when would you use NDEs as evidence for something? I, I suppose two general categories. When someone says something like, look around you, have you ever seen anything supernatural? Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen, and it's always the same example. Have you ever seen a limb grow out right in front of your eyes? There actually is a, a, a couple of cases that in print, but, but have you seen a limb grow out? Have you seen this happen? Have you seen that happen? And I go, time out, time out. What about, and I will give them, and it depends on what they say they want. I'll say you want evidence inside the room, evidence outside the room, evidence in the blind, evidence from a healthy person, evidence that nobody knows that you're your deceased father, you have reason to believe he just told you this, and sure enough, the telegram comes in two days. Which of these examples do you want? What category? Oh, I don't know. Give me some, you're down in the room, and by the way, we know that a lot of these people have measurably, that's all you can say, measurably, no heart or no brain activity when they give the results. So if you have no heart, no brain, measurable, and you report something that's a mile away in your home, let's say, and it's evidenced, uh, my experience is you don't have to give more than about two or three of those. And here's what the skeptic does. You're kidding me. Just like that. Where can I find this? Oh, it's in this book. Where else? It's in that medical journal. But mm. really? Dude, that's good stuff. And that's how the conversation starts. So I use it as a conversation starter for people who basically say there's no Narnia, there's no Middle Earth, there's no other world. We don't know anything about this. I'll say, well, you haven't read near-death experiences. The other way I use it is if somebody's talking to me about the resurrection, and they'll say there's one problem with your evidence. One problem. We don't know of a world like that. We don't know of a son of God who died and rose from the dead. You say yourself, it's never happened before. What are the odds that you're wrong? And, of course, that's a paraphrase of David Hume. How do you know that you're wrong? I'll I'll go time out. Do you want to talk about near-death experiences? Now, I've done this before in dialogues and had the skeptic go, no, I don't want to discuss near-death experiences. But here's my point. If NDEs tell us there's consciousness after the death of the body, if there's consciousness, if there's an afterlife, then how can you deny me talking about the afterlife, Mm -hmm. i.e. the resurrection of Jesus? Just before I went on the air with you, I am working on a large magnum opus on the resurrection. And I am in a chapter right now where I'm entertaining people who say that the resurrection of Jesus is like other near-death type phenomena because they're all similar phenomena from another world. I think, well, you know, I don't believe that. I don't. I think the resurrection of Jesus is, is unique. But the fact that they feel free to say, oh, that happens all the time. Really? Yeah. If it happens all the time, then why don't you believe in the supernatural? So that's the other way I use it, to kind of open up the door to the, either as an attention getter, have you heard about this evidence, or as a door to eternity, because it's no coincidence. Yeah, I could do intelligent design, but people would say, 
Well, yeah, the, the odds that that would happen are pretty strange. Now, how do you get the resurrection? But if you have an NDE, hmm. they see the relevance because it's about afterlife, and so is the resurrection. Yeah. Now, you mentioned your yeah. magnum opus. How, how many pages are you at right now? I'm at about – I, I do one chapter at a time, so I okay. don't have a running total. But the last time I counted a couple of months ago, I was about – I think I was a little over 4,700 pages. Oh, my goodness. And I think I heard an interview where you said a lot of that is still new information, not included in your other – what, 50, you've written oh. about 15 books or so on the resurrection? I've written 20-something 20 20-something. 20 yeah, I've done 40-something books, and and almost exactly half of them are on the resurrection. Wow. Now, in this magnum opus, I don't think the duplicate stuff even hits 10%. I think it's 90% new material. Yeah. Wow. That's that's awesome. Well, you know, okay, so... We, you're mentioning, okay, let's use some of these NDEs as good evidence to show that there's a supernatural world, that there is this immaterial world. We have souls. That points to, obviously, huge Christian implications. Uh, what examples should people use? I think probably the most common one is the heaven is for real boy uh, going up to heaven and, and seeing his sister or whoever it was. Um, is that a good example to use, or are there stronger, more evidentially-based ones that you would prefer oh, using? There's, there, are, there are ones that that would just— to use a colloquial phrase, I'm from Detroit, you know, drag racing capital, uh, it would blow somebody's doors off. It just, these, I mean, I use different ones, but just an example of something that really gets people attention and lets me get in and out of it real quickly. But um, there's a case where a woman was in this state where her, uh, her mind, and she all of a sudden has an NDE in a hospital and she goes up above her, above her, above her body and she looks down on a medical device in the room that is over everybody's head. It's about six or eight feet tall, but she's up above. So she sees a riveted number on the top of the machine and there's 12 digits. When she comes to, she says to the nurse in the room, she says, uh, get a pen, get a piece of paper. I can tell you something right away. She says, I'm obsessive compulsive. I, I'm OCD. And I saw a number while I was up there. I want to tell you what it is. It's a 12-digit it's a number. And she repeats this random 12-digit number. And a few days later, they were going to move this machine. And they wouldn't let the guys move the machine until somebody went up there on a ladder and checked the number. And she got all 12 digits right, although she was up above her body and there frantically trying to resuscitate her to bring her back to life. But she repeated the 12 digit number. One of the odds that, you know, she'd get 12, 12 digits right in order. Yeah. So, and, and then, I know some, go, go ahead. Oh, and that's what I was going to say. And then you mentioned, you've told me that uh, one of your uh, students or a research person that works for you or something knows that nurse and went and talked and found that nurse. That's correct. That wrote down that's the number. Correct. We have it. We have it in writing. Yeah. And another person, they found a quarter that somebody tossed up into the rafters. You know, we're always trying to throw money up in the rafters. <laughs> and it was a 1982 quarter. And uh, they said that, you go, well, come on, that quarter is going to be sometime between 1975 and 2020. Right, but that's 45 years. Yeah. You know, and it, so it's either going to be 19 or 20, and it's going to be one of the numbers between 75 and, and 20. 75, 1975 to 2020. And uh, what are the odds you're going to get the quarter right? Yep. And there's just many, many cases uh, inside the room, outside the room. So I, it usually takes me a little longer to tell the story. So I don't want to take your time up. But but some of these short ones, there's a famous case of a gal who was, as far as the doctors could tell, she was measurably brain dead. And she told what her parents were, what her mom was making for dinner in her home outside the hospital. 
she looked in on her home and saw what her mom was making for dinner after her parents had to go home for the night. She was on a machine to breathe because she had no gag reflex and no mental, no activity when probed. They said she, in fact, the medical doctor on duty told me that she had about a one in 10,000 chance of living and about 10% of that living with any kind of mental content or memory. And she was, she correctly told what her mom was making for dinner. Now, is that something where the skeptic says, well, you know, they always make that food on a Tuesday night. So, you know, of course, you know, she would know what her mom was making. Or is there something yeah. to that story where it is a crazy meal that normally is not cooked? Yeah, no, I don't think it was a crazy meal. It was, it was a variety of chicken. And uh, she was making roast chicken or rice, okay. if I remember the story. But if somebody, see, there's so many of these cases, there's over 300 of them. That's a good comeback. But if someone goes, well, how do you know it was not? And you go, well, I don't know. I never asked her that question. Oh, do you have another one? Yeah, I'll give you another one. I'll give you another one. I'll give you another one. When, how, how many would you get up to? Ten? Like the 12-digit number? How many? Here, here's another one, a real quick one. It's not as evidential, but it's really interesting. Um, this lady was arguing with her doctor after surgery, and he said, ma'am, we've already checked that thing. We had the machine in the room. And she said, you didn't have it. And he said, we did have the machine in the room. And, and she goes, go down and check it. Because it wasn't plugged in. I was up above the. I was up above my body. You guys didn't plug the machine in. He said, "Just a second. He went out of the room and ran down there. The machine wasn't plugged into the wall. <laughs> just, just, just things like that. Yeah. And you can work people out with the data because there's so many of these things. Yeah. So the question came in then is: Are there some common things people say they experience when they come back, or is it just completely random? Where this is what my family's cooking. There's a quarter. There's a number. Um, or is there like, you know, how many of these are like I experienced heaven versus I experienced something here that happens here on earth? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people go for the evidence in the room or down the hall or outside the building. Yeah. I have had two cases, by the way, where the person was was out and they were putting them on an ambulance. But the person was up above their body and they read the number on the top of the ambulance that helicopters used to track the the uh, you know the ambulance. So yeah. there, there's some more examples of numbers. But but um, when when they they want to pick that kind of evidence, uh, they say, what about heaven and hell? You know, 21 percent, according to one survey, 21 percent of all the cases were hell cases. But let me tell you why I don't trust those. Whenever there's a whole now, these are Christian objections. Um, whenever somebody has. Uh, statements about the Bible, they'll say, yeah, I can't accept NDEs because nobody went to hell. Or what about the guy who saw an angel instead of seeing Jesus? Or, you know, they've got these things about heaven. I only like to have evidence. If you want me to give evidence, I can only give you this worldly stuff. It's the, it is the 1982 quarter. It is the 12-digit number. It is the woman where the machine wasn't plugged in. It's the one where the girl knew what her mom was making for dinner. She had no brain activity, as far as I know. Um, those are the cases. But if you go, how come it didn't work out? I know a, a well-known skeptic of NDE research, but he doesn't trust the data because it's not biblical enough for him. Hmm. Okay. Here's my problem. None of the heavenly parts. What are you going to do about the heavenly parts? Where's your evidence? Okay, well, I saw Jesus. Okay, I hate to say this because I think you might see Jesus sometime, but how do you know you saw Jesus? I'm just telling you who I was with. Did you ask him? No. Even if he told you, would you believe him? I don't know it was Jesus. Okay, 
Uh, how do you know you were in hell? There's no evidence. Maybe you were born of the Bible Belt and you just believe there's going to be a hell there. What I mean is all the heavenly cases are testimonies. Hmm. It's no more evidential for me to tell you I was in heaven or I was in hell than to be my next door neighbor and to tell me I'm Jewish. I don't believe anything you're talking about. That's your testimony. You have a right to believe that. But but don't cite the what didn't match up to your biblical idea when you have no evidence that that happened or didn't happen. You see what I mean? Yeah. It's the this worldly stuff that's verifiable. Yeah. Not, not you know, this doesn't happen. But what if an angel said, well, you better, if you're going to get back up here again in 20 years, you better become a Buddhist because that's what's true. There are no cases like that. But there's there's no evidence for that. What yeah. if it was a bad dream? Well, and aren't there cases where non-believers say that they went and experienced heaven? Oh. And how would we make sense of that? Well, and there's the other one, too. There, there's a, there's a, a, a paper years ago where the author said he uh, didn't believe in every, anything after death until he had a near-death experience, and now he knows there's a hell. Hmm. I mean, there's those cases, too, but see, you go, well, hey, you must like that one because you're one of those Christians. I say, well, I can tell the story and laugh. Notice I left till the end of the interview here. I don't put it up front because there's no evidence he saw hell. I only use the evidential cases, yeah. but you're— consciousness should not be working when the machines say you have no heart, no brain activity. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely true. Now, what would... Way, oh, see, I go for it. When you have a certain kind of species of heart attack, a, um, a cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, when your heart's not working, it only takes about 14 seconds for your brain to stop working. Hmm. So if you give me an NDE report that's, let's say, two minutes after the fact, you're giving me data, and it's evidential, you're giving me a report that can't be accounted for as far as we know from the harder brain. Wow. Now, what would you say to like a Christian objection, maybe of quoting second Corinthians five, eight, that says to be, uh, you know, separate away from the body is to be present with the Lord. Scripture seems to point to that when your soul separates from the body, you're with the Lord. You're not floating around on earth, checking in on your family and seeing what kind of quarters are up in the vents. If I were saying, if, if you were telling me that, and you want to take a stand for scripture, I'd say, how do you know what you're doing 10 seconds after you die? Could you be on your way to heaven and see the quarter on the rafter? Could maybe it take three minutes to die, as people think now? And you don't just, like in the old Western, you don't just go, <sighs> and you're dead. You're, maybe you're still around your body until all the processes stop. You know, Jewish tradition is that the spirit hovered around the body for three or four days because that's when things were finally done. Uh, I mean, I don't think that's what people are thinking today. But what I'm saying is, how do you know what you can't do on the way to heaven? We don't know anything. And, and, and by the way, it's appointed that a man wants to die after the judgment. That's the book of Hebrews. Um, I say to people when they quote that verse to me, I'll say, well, tell me something. If it's after that, the judgment, has that judgment come yet? If that judgment hasn't come yet, why are you telling me I can't know what happens five minutes later? Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, you know, trying to understand how we have these conversations and how can we, you know, discuss this good evidence. Um, so as we kind of piece these together, uh, another actually another question just came in. So let me throw this one up. Um, do out of body experiences, not necessarily near death, um, also prove? That, so are we using this to prove the existence of a soul? Is that um, one thing I mean, that we can I, do? If they're evidential, I think there's something interesting there. But the problem with those kind of things, they're often, some of those are manifested like 
people do them on purpose. And to me, that sounds more occultic. Um, but if the person is, there's some value to knowing the person is close to death. Hmm. I would rather have a case with, with measurably flat brain, flat heart. And then you give evidence 20 minutes after the fact where we have reason to think those two organs aren't working. Um, I would rather take those cases than the kind you're talking about, because you can get some bombastic ones, but if there's no data for them, I just, you know, I don't, I don't have much reason. So if you're having, if someone's having an out-of-body experience, um, how do I know that they just don't have the ability to do some crazy things? Um, if, and if there's no evidence they had them, how do I know they're telling the truth? How do I know it wasn't a dream? I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying, let's use the same criteria. How would I know you had it? Yeah. So I go for the most evidential ones. Yeah. So kind of, I mean, kind of wrapping this all up, you're, another area is, is you study miracles. And I think that uh, the objection against all of this, as we kind of, you know, look at the worldview aspect, is this naturalistic kind of philosophy of materialism that, that our world seems to hold to, that a lot of people have. And we've kind of discussed some aspects of that. Um, where you use near-death experiences to show that there's some sort of immaterial world that naturalism might be false. Uh, I mean, how would you go about? Oh yeah, go. I think that that's the most obvious thing that comes from this. Yeah. Buddhists, think about this. Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, and Christians are shoulder to shoulder if they think Indies are pretty cool. Who's the odd man out? Naturalists. Hmm. They're the ones who have the most to lose. They're the ones who deny everything. And here's the Buddhist going, it's true, dude. We have one of these in our family. The Muslim says, hey, I saw Jesus in a dream. The Jewish guy goes, hey, it happened to my father. He's an Orthodox Jew. Uh, you know, there's these other sorts of things. And what they all agree is, man, I'm not trying to tell you what's going on, but you better get your heart right. There's something going on out there. There's something out there in the real world. So I think the clearest conclusion is naturalism is mistaken. Yeah, but I'm sure there are naturalists that have studied this. How would they respond and object to what you say? They'd probably say hallucination. He's just dreaming. He's just that. He's just this. There are cases where, uh, there are cases when people come back. How about a guy who's an atheist? There's more than one of these cases. How about people who say they became Christians during the near-death experience? Hmm. They met Jesus. Now, they can't prove they saw Jesus, but they come back and they left their atheism and maybe they were ardent uh, critics. And now they're they witnessed everybody they have a chance to witness to. There are a lot of change stories where atheists have one of these and uh, come to believe in the afterlife. So you have seen the evidence for the resurrection, the evidence of NDEs actually be powerful in bringing people to Christianity. I have. Awesome. I have. By, God, by God's grace, because that's not. Yeah, I think you said it correctly. And people coming to Christianity, it's not me bringing them in. It's not me twisting their arm. It's not struck, you know, chalk one up for me. Yeah. But yes, there. And, and Greg Kokel, I, I love his put a stone in the shoe. Yep. Uh, there are a lot of people who walk away with stones in their shoes after these things. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Habernas, thank you so much for spending this time discussing this important information with me and with those listening and watching. Good. Thanks a lot. to follow your love will guide my